0: So, think back with me. This has either happened to you actually, like it did to me, or this has happened to you in a dream. You've got this massive test coming up. Some of you kids are thinking, Oh, I do. And though you're prone to procrastinate, you study diligently. Study might even be an understatement. You're determined, so determined, to memorize the material to such a point that you. Uh, there's, like, there's no question that could come up that you couldn't answer. Not even that. You study so hard, you could teach if the teacher called in sick. Day in and day out, you begin dreaming about this material. Maybe even having nightmares about this test. You show up to the test in your underwear, but you still ace the test. That's how confident you are. In your nightmares, you still do well. Nothing stopping you. Confident to the point of arrogance, because you've basically told anyone within earshot of the library, "I'm going to smoke this test." You strut into the exam room. However, you take a quick little glance at the exam, and your heart stops, and then burns. You start sweating a lump forms into your throat and you have a hard time breathing because you studied the wrong material. And there's nothing you can do about it. This is how Nicodemus must have felt when he approached Jesus with all the confidence in the world trying to catch Jesus at his own game. When the tables are flipped, they're turned kind of metaphorically versus when they actually were turned in the previous story. Because it exposes his complete ignorance. His complete ignorance of Jesus and the salvation he brings forth in an alarming way. You see, Nicodemus' confrontation with Jesus falls on the heels of the temple cleansing that we talked about last week. When the Jewish priests, who are fuming on what just occurred before them, ask Jesus, why are you doing these things? Kind of buttering him up for a one-two punch of confrontation, but then they're the ones who get confronted. So we're going to see this in three points. First, this confrontation with Jesus, verses 23 through chapter 3, verse 9. The leader of the Jews, again, he should be thinking temple cleansing. That's just what happens. Confronts Jesus in much the same way, and we we do we do some of the same things too either outside of Christ or in Christ, will still confront him in much the same way. Second is confusion surrounding Jesus, verses 10 through 15. You and I, we are called out with Nicodemus, exposing our ignorance of the heavenly reality. And then lastly, salvation through Jesus, verses 16 through 21. The good news is, God can save you and Nicodemus. We actually don't see that in chapter 3. It actually doesn't occur until the end of John. It's has been this waiting period for us. And I hope this becomes clear throughout. God so loved you in your sin that he gave you Christ. Not when you cleaned yourself up, presented yourself well, but he loved you in your sin that he gave you Christ. And we're going to start with point one, confrontation with Jesus. As the last episode of the temple cleansing occurred, if you remember, near the Passover, it wasn't on the Passover, it was near the Passover, John brings us to the Passover. That's in verse 23. Because now that the temple has been cleansed, the feast can occur. After Jesus kind of cleansed the temple without the priests enjoying what he does. And like Yahweh's plagues were to confront Egypt and his people, with his power and glory, melt their hearts and believe in him, now the the people believe in Jesus. Basically the same thing happens in the Exodus as it does with Jesus in the temple cleansing. Jesus is showing his divine identity. He doesn't have to prove it. He's showing it. He doesn't negotiate with anybody. He doesn't say, like you know, if you kind of believe this or that, he says, no, I'm, I'm Yahweh in flesh, better believe it. And with a a fun little play on words, so the people believe in his name, Jesus on his part didn't entrust himself. He's like, I know it's in you guys. I know it's in me. I know it's in you. And John is transitioning from the temple episode to what's about to occur in this next scene with Nicodemus and Jesus. You see, in verse 25, John uses this little device, and it's it's not, not hidden, but it's kind of hard to see. And it connects the temple cleansing to Nicodemus' unfortunate interaction with the divine Son of God. It says Jesus does not need to convince anyone who he is. Certainly not man. He's not kind of negotiating with you and saying, well, you know what? If I give you this argument, will you believe in me? What well, about this argument? Will you believe in me? Nor does he need any man to convince anyone concerning Jesus. He doesn't need John. He could just go throughout his ministry, but John is there as a witness in the Old Testament. Because he knows, Jesus does, what's in every man. Jesus doesn't play a tub of war with your affections trying to convince you to believe in his divine miracle working. Sort of like you don't have to convince someone A lion in the wild can kill you instantly after watching it track down and rip apart its prey. You don't have to convince somebody. It's like, that thing can kill you. You're like, of course, it's five times my size and it's a lot stronger than me. Jesus achieves the result of his work by doing the work. And this connection in verse 25, and he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. It's then found in the next verse. In verse 1 to chapter 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. So John already tells you what's going to happen before he even gets to the narrative. Jesus already knows what's in Nicodemus's mind before he even talks to Nicodemus. And John tells you. And finally, we meet a ruler of the Jews. And that's really important. Because you think, if... Anyone knows who Jesus is. Anyone knows who the Messiah is going to be. Does anyone on the planet is the ruler of the Jews. Because everyone so far, at least the Jewish priests and the Pharisees, the Levites who guard the temple, they have the foggiest idea of who they're dealing with. No clue. They ask John, are you the Christ? We don't know. At the temple cleansing... He cleansed the temple, like you could be anybody. Who knows? So now you do it with a ruler, and you're like, this guy must know. Like you're you're the, you're the top dog of the Jews. You've got to know. The dude with, with all the credentials, he's got the five PhDs, he's got his doctorates, he's got his masters, like this guy should know. He's he's the ruler. Years of studying the Torah. Again, if you are a ruler of the Jews, you have the entire Old Testament in Hebrew memorized down flat. No question. got everything in your mind. You don't have to bring a Bible with you. You just got it off the fly. That, that's who Jesus is dealing with. You're spent in the synagogue under the most elite teacher of his day. You don't become the ruler of Jews by, by happenstance. It's, you've been trained. You've been selected. Now you're the guy. Surely, surely Nicodemus knows who Jesus is. That's that's kind of how John sets him up. This guy knows, right? He's going to figure it out. He's going to tell everybody else who Jesus is after this interaction. And verse 2 then reads as when you received a phone call as I'm sure some of you have or will from a child who's left for college or runs out of money. You can can kind of hear this in Nicodemus. This is my my interpretation kind of modern day interpretation imagine you get a call that says hey my favorite father hey my favorite mother whom I love so much you know how much I love you right what's your first thought fathers and mothers when you get this kind of call not well thank you I love you too is what do you need what do you want how much money do you need? That's precisely how you should read Nicodemus' statements. Not just kind of an innocent question. He's leading him. He's kind of buttering him up. Because it's almost comical based off the first interaction with Jesus or his disciples. Is, is there any indication so far that they know who he is? Is there anything that like, yeah, they're kind of getting it now? It, it looks like they have the foggiest idea. So when you're looking at Nicodemus, he's... He's buttering him up. And also comes at night, under the guise of darkness, to approach the lights. That's not normal. You don't go up to probably what they think is some fringe preacher, some fringe miracle worker at nights. Doesn't look good if you're ruling the Jews. The beginning of the Gospel speaks of this. The gospel of John speaks of this. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overtake it. Because John plays off light and dark. So he says the ruler of the Jews comes in dark, you are also expecting something a little different. And though Nicodemus doesn't ask a question, notice that. Does he ask a question? Say, Jesus, why are you doing these things? He just says a statement. And then Jesus responds. He evokes the same speech he used in John 151 when he proclaims that he is the divine son of man from Daniel 7, coming the clouds of glory of Yahweh. That's who's speaking to Nicodemus. So even though Nicodemus is kind of buttering him up, he nails him. He doesn't know he's nailing him, but he is. The king has come to earth, and this truly, truly, I say to you is kingly speech. That's him proclaiming, this is who I am from my throne, believe me. So how will Nicodemus respond how will you respond to the king's summons because he's not just talking to Nicodemus he's talking to you and again, Nicodemus, the ruler of the Jews likely the leader of the Pharisees he's the number one guy they all if they all kind of got into a vote like who's going to debate Jesus They're, they all point to Nicodemus that's the guy If anyone could do it it's him or at the very least, they represent him. He, he's, he's the guy who puts the best face forward. He responds to Jesus. If anyone should get, again, if anyone should get Jesus right, it's Nicodemus. And yet he falls completely flat in his face. Born again means nothing to him. I have no idea. What on earth are you talking about? Is it possible for man to be born when he is old or or crawl back into his mother's womb and then exit out the same way for his second birth? He's he's absolutely stupefied. And he takes it woodenly. He's like, let me think about this. How do I crawl back into my mom's womb and then come back out? Between verses 6 and 7, Jesus responds with another kingly proclamation. This... This kingdom of God, this this king of the kingdom of God come to earth to earn his seat as a human being, because he wasn't a human being before his incarnation, speaking of birth through water and the Spirit. And And this alone is the entrance requirements into the kingdom of God. Paul used the same language in 1 Corinthians 15. He probably pulls from this when he talks in 1 Corinthians 15. And Jesus weaves multiple Old Testament allusions. If your Bible has cross-references of me, do these, some, some don't. They're, they're tightly packed into a few verses. The Spirit bringing a new heart, that's straight from Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36. Again, Nicodemus has that memorized. He could pull that up to his, his head and say, look, I know what you're talking about. But Nicodemus is like, I have no idea. You have this memorized. You should know this. This heart transformed by God through obedience to the Messiah implants in the heart of God's elect. That's in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. You're an Old Testament expert. You should know this. The Spirit, though, doesn't move in humanly discernible ways. You can't track it. You can't tell where to go. You can't use math to figure out what's the next place it's going to. You can't woo it. You can't invite it can't persuade it you can't predict it ecclesiastes 11 4, 5 uses this it's, it's, probably, it's probably what jesus is pulling from he speaks of the womb of the woman her child and the movement of the spirit which no man can control again jesus is not bringing new stuff he's not saying i got all this new stuff to tell you that's divorced from everything else you've ever read he's just quoting the old testaments which is why he says later on, you're a ruler of the Jews, you're a teacher of Israel, and you don't know this? The thing you memorized, you can't pull it up and tell me. That's precisely what Jesus is talking about here. Because this can also be translated, this born again can also be translated, born from above. It's exactly how they talk about the Old Testament. The spirit comes from the kingdom of God above to come down to earth to renew our hearts that we might be born from above. And the confronter then becomes the confronted. Nicodemus thinks he's got the upper hand. He's like, I'm I'm going to bring the word of God to this random miracle worker. But then it gets flipped on him. So Nicodemus says, how could these things be? Jesus doesn't bring a new theology. doesn't bring new understanding. He's not uttering profound stuff not found in scripture. This is not new revelation. He's not bringing new stuff to Nicodemus. He's merely quoting the Old Testament. That's, that's all he does. Alludes to it or quotes it. And he said, that spoke about me. So Nicodemus, an expert in the Torah, again... This guy is an expert. That's who Jesus is talking to. A zealot of the Old Testament scriptures, the one who scrupulously upholds the law. That's what the Pharisees do. It's let's uphold the law of God, and if you break it, you're going to hear from us. Absolutely misses it. No idea. It's like you and I, when we confront Jesus, we are so sure of ourselves i got this thing figured out. i got my life figured out. I know what I'm doing. And when you meet Jesus, you're like, I had no idea. I was completely lost. So like Nicodemus, we confront Jesus in our hearts. What Nicodemus says is exactly what we think. That's how we confront him. That's how all of us have confronted him before. It's how all of us kind of still confront him. We still say basically the same stuff. We think we know him better than he knows us. For we were all confused about Jesus before he clarified himself and his mission to us, as he did in Nicodemus, which brings us to point two, confusion surrounding Jesus. Beginning at verse 10, Jesus brings it home, lays it on thick. You, you, can, you can hear not just his frustration, but his disappointment in verse 10 you are the teacher of Israel and yet you don't understand these things you who made a career of studying my word about me thinks Jesus known throughout Judah and Jerusalem like you're the dude everyone goes to when they want to learn they want to know the Torah they go to you you have no idea no clue you can almost hear Jesus thinking, you can, if, you, if you don't if you want to step into his mind, you know, it's a little weird. But you can hear him thinking kind of what Ezekiel 34 talks about. What does this say about the people Nicodemus has been leading? They're sheep without a shepherd. They've been learning from a teacher who doesn't know his stuff. Who thinks he knows his stuff, but doesn't know his stuff. And like many of you here today, this is when Jesus stripped you of all of your supposed authority and autonomy. You thought, like I did, that you could approach, or you probably still think so, you can approach Jesus on your terms. I gotta figure this guy out. He's harmless, right? Maybe just adds a little pizzazz to my life, adds a little bit good stuff to my life surely doesn't transform it because Jesus doesn't negotiate with him he doesn't like try to barter with him it doesn't try to negotiate with him it doesn't enter a dialogue about his achievements and five reasons why you should believe him he exposes hypocrisy he exposes his economy he exposes that we could corner him and place ourselves atop the throne and shows you he already sits there and then the third kingly proclamation in nearly as many verses saying in so many words in verse 11, you have no idea what you're talking about. None. Not even like you're starting there, maybe you have a little bit. You've got nothing. Recall how Nicodemus began this conversation in verse 1 and 2. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God. How does Jesus respond in verse 11? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know. He uses Nicodemus' words against them. You say you know, but we actually know. Nicodemus doesn't doesn't speak from knowledge or piety or sincere desire to know Jesus, but out of complete arrogance and ignorance. Not... You're confused, Jesus says. Or you're so close. Try a little harder. You're just a bit off. Just tweak this here, tweak this there. He says, you do not receive me. What is he calling Nicodemus? He's calling him a a non-believer. You're not a Christian. You're not a believer. Not even like, you're there, but you're not. He's like, like, you don't receive God, you don't receive me, nothing. You don't believe. And much of the reason that Nicodemus does not receive Jesus and and none of us will receive Jesus is not because you lack knowledge. It is not because you don't have the credentials. It is not because you haven't cleaned yourself up. But because in verse 12, earthly people only understand earthly things. Spiritual people understand spiritual things. That's the difference. If Nicodemus can't recognize Jesus on earth, that's what he's talking about, you see me, you hear me, how would you expect to recognize me in heaven? If you can't see me right in front of you, how do you expect to see me in heaven? If you cannot see Jesus through the pages of scripture and confess his name, what do you expect? Because confessing and believing Jesus for a new heart and the forgiveness of sins and his perfect righteousness Credited to your accounts, it doesn't take an advanced theological degree, doesn't take a strong family background, doesn't take a good and moral life. It takes Jesus revealing himself to you as a heavenly king to you, entering you into his heavenly kingdom. That's what it takes. He reveals himself to you because he does. So in verse 13 through verse 15, Jesus evokes even more Old Testament scripture to substantiate his claim. He's not proving his claim. He's substantiating it. John 1.51 uses almost the same language. Is, it's a fairly important verse for a lot of Jesus' words. But here Jesus connects the Son of Man who comes from the clouds of heaven in Daniel 7, the angels descending and ascending on the ladder between heaven and earth in Genesis 28 with Moses lifting up a fiery serpent on a pole for the salvation of the, of the Israelites. So there's a lot packed in these three verses. And this last allusion tie-in with Moses is extremely significant for us. So I'll give you kind of a spark note of what he's pulling from Numbers 21. That's where this, this story happens. So the spark noted. The Israelites are delivered from the Canaanites again. That's basically all Numbers 21 or all Numbers is about. But immediately grumble right after being saved, saying, we liked a lot better when we were in Egypt because at least we knew where our food was coming from. And so Yahweh sends fiery serpents upon Israel and these fiery serpents then bite and then kill the grumbling Israelites. So they cry and repent to Moses who then intercedes before Yahweh and delivers them again. And then that's kind of the, this, the cyclical picture of the Old Testament. Is we're delivered, we cry. We're delivered, we cry. So now they figure it out and everything goes well after that. It's just a cyclical period that you and I know really well. So Yahweh acquiesces. like, fine, let's, we'll do this. And then uses the same fiery serpents and places it on a pole, also the word used for banner, that the Israelites might look on for deliverance. Doesn't say something else. The same thing that just bit and killed them, he places it on a, a pole, if they look upon that, they're saved. The very thing that was their destruction, the fiery serpent, which would bring to mind Genesis 3, Is it used for the deliverance? The Son of Man who comes in Daniel 7 comes in judgment upon the nations. That's the point of Daniel. At least Daniel 7. Jesus says, that's me who when confessed as Savior, the very same Judger becomes your salvation. And that's who you look upon. That's who we look upon. Because the people, the, the, actually the pole used by Moses to lift up the serpent is the only time it's translated as pole in the Old Testament. Because everywhere it's used for banner. And it's used for banner of Yahweh. Which is throughout the Psalms and throughout the rest of Numbers and Exodus. pointing to Jesus. That's who you look upon. The banner of Yahweh. They looked upon Jesus in the New Testament and the Old Testament. Pre incarnate, but they looked upon Jesus. And we look upon the same. So Nicodemus' confusion, our confusion finds its resolution, the Son of Man lifted up for the salvation of his people. For your salvation. This brings us to our last point salvation through Jesus. Because this is the remarkable thing about Jesus. It's actually not that he saves, it's that he saves you. That he saves me. As, as Paul kind of waxes in Romans five, it's, or as Jesus also talks about it too, it's, it's one thing to save your friend. An entirely different thing to save your enemy. And that's the remarkable thing about Jesus is he was given to Nicodemus, to you, and to me. Because in verse sixteen, God loved the world. And this is an incredibly recognizable verse, and everyone loves quoting this. But the world is a world of good thing and dawn. It is full of sin, it is full of muck, it is full of dirt. And it did not recognize Jesus when he came in. That's where Jesus was sent. Lest we forget who populates this world, it's not filled with God lovers. It's not who Jesus was sent to. It's not those who, when they saw Jesus come in in the, in the form of babies, like, thank God. He's come. It's not what you get. John 1 makes it abundantly clear that this world, both you, me, Nicodemus, and everyone else, hates him. Not just like, fine, come on in, kind of neutral. This neighbor that you kind of like, but he's, you don't see him often, you're like, if you want to come over, it's fine. See, we hate him. That is who God gave his son to. Gave him to the world who hates him. God gave, God gives, and he continues giving. When all you and I do, and you can hear Nicodemus do the same, all we do is question. We interrogate. We spit on him. We hate him. We stiff-arm him. Everything to keep God away... And yet God still pursues. John here in John three sixteen is he's not just saying kind of a, a pithy little Bible verse that one day two thousand years later we're going to put on mugs or put on little banners across our rooms or put on eye black as we've seen before. He's applying John three fourteen to fifteen. That's what it means for us. As a fiery serpent was looked upon for the salvation of a weary complaining, and unthankful people. Does it sound familiar? We look upon Jesus for ours. For stunningly, in John 3, 17, Jesus didn't come to condemn the world, which he should have. If we think about it, should the almighty, all-powerful, omniscient, omnipresent, perfect, pure God condemn the world? Absolutely. But that's not what he did in his first advent. He came to save her. He came to save the world. He came to save you. A world who wants to judge Jesus. That's so what Nicodemus wants to do. That's what we want to do. Jesus comes to save. And so John continues in verse 18 with the same application result as the Israelites experienced in the wilderness in Numbers 21. You, we, who deserve condemnation the punishments of our sins against a holy God, like John says, this belief was not something we conjured from ourself. Wasn't we looked upon his laws as I get it now. Let me go follow this Jesus guy because he looks a little better than the law does. It's a lot easier than having all my sins condemned. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to choose this guy because he's easier. It was implanted into us. You didn't want it. I didn't want it. And in fact, we wanted Jesus as far away from us as possible. Don't come into my life. Don't transform my life. This, it's not some divine indigestion where kind of goes in our stomach and they're like, oh, i got to figure out what to do with this. A holy rumbling on our souls. Rest. The, the law condemns your sin. Not because you lack belief in the law not like you're not believing the law hard enough, like, I really want to do this. Because we don't do the law. Law is not a thing you believe in. Law is a thing you do. You practice your thought life, what your hands do, what your desire. Our belief justifies us and pulls us out from under the condemnation of the blessing of the Lord by believing on the banner of Yahweh. Jesus. But in verse 19, all we know too clearly, when this light comes, what do you want to do And you're just barely waking up in the morning and your parents flip on the light? Like, please don't turn on the lights. Let me be in the dark a little longer. It's a lot easier. I need my eyes to adjust for this a little longer. As Nicodemus came in the dark and was exposed by the light of Jesus Christ, we who are dark are exposed to the lights. Because being in the dark, it's kind of nice. Or at least parts of it are kind of nice. Our spots and wrinkles, dirt on our body, filth of our sin, it's not as easy to see in the dark. The fact that they're hidden in the dark. Even if, you, if you're in a dark room and you look in a mirror, can you really see yourself? Can you see all the blemishes in your body, all the filth in your body. No. But shine a flashlight on them. There's nowhere you can go. In a bright, lit room with a mirror right in front of you, you see everything. You can't hide. We're in verse 19 and verse 20, John gets actually more explicit. What does this mean? Every thought, every action, every lie, everything is exposed to the light. If you're like me, you don't like being exposed. It's not fun. Really difficult. That's why we like staying in the dark. Because you're not exposed. Like I said, like eyes trying to adjust to the light after night's sleep, it's painful at first. But the gospel readjusts your your eyes. It allows you to see and as Nicodemus was exposed, so will everyone who has ever lived be. But whoever's been purchased, redeemed, delivered, and imputed righteous by the obedience of Jesus can bring their works to light. Because if you're dark and evil, if you've been in the dark all your life and you bring your works, what's going to happen with your works? They're going to be exposed. Can you conjure up good works from yourself? No if you have the redemption, the perfection, the righteousness of Christ, you can bring your works. Because they've been redeemed. They've been purchased. Because your condemnation has been taken care of. And there's, there's, no, there's no resolution to this story. Nicodemus doesn't in verse 24 say, Jesus, I believe. Actually, doesn't happen for about 15 chapters. It's been a long time until when Nicodemus is exposed and what he probably believes. Not told you explicitly. but Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea are at the foot of the cross. And the Pharisees are like, what are you doing here? Because make no mistake, everyone here, right here, you are Nicodemus. You're not Jesus. Not the Israelites. You are Nicodemus. Not as smart as Nicodemus. But you are Nicodemus. You will either be exposed as ignorant and condemned by the law or have been exposed and brought to light by the gospel. There's two options. God gave his son for us. He gave his son for Nicodemus. He gave his son for you. Not for the good guys. Not for the people who have it all together. He gave it for you who hates him. Who hated him. Who came to him at night like we do out of fear? How is Jesus going to receive me? How is Jesus going to accept me when I've done all this stuff for 30, 40 years? Is he gonna receive me or is he gonna look at my, my blemishes like I can't I can't take that one? There's too much. It's God gave his son for that one. It's actually the one who comes with him and says, I can't come to you because I got way too much dirt on me. Jesus is like, that's your entrance requirements. Is that your dirty? Is that your dark? Is that you don't want to be exposed? That's your requirements to come to him. Because that's your requirement to come to me. God gave his Son for all of you who believe because you don't have to worry any longer about judgments. All you're doing is waiting for your birth from above to be shown for what actually is. You will enter into the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Lord, we hear these things and so often we wonder why on earth did you save me versus my friend, my family, my coworker, whoever it is. And it's just out of your good pleasure. You didn't see anything in us. In fact, all you saw was a sin that separated us from you. We came to you like Nicodemus came to you. We came to you confident, full of ourselves, thinking we could figure you out. And you turned it on us. And you didn't just turn on us to condemn us, to show us all the things we've done wrong. You turned on us so that we might see you as the Savior of our lives. You don't just condemn us because we've come to you trying to figure you out, trying to do things on our own. You condemn us so that we might look to you for our salvation. Lord, may we hear this, may we see this, may we feel this anew today, may we walk in light of this. We thank you, we praise you, all this in son's name.